Hi there, everybody. My name is Karen Abramson, and I live here in Israel, but I'm originally from England. I have been keeping a diary since I was a very young girl, and every single day I record what's happened during the day. Of course, this year, 2020, is a very unusual year. This is my COVID diary. I want to share this with you, my COVID diary, and I hope that you would like to share your COVID diary with me. Hi everyone, it's Karen here again, and welcome to another of my COVID diaries. Well, actually, it's not quite my COVID diary today. This is what you call a bonus episode. And I'm delighted to have a very special guest who will share his stories with us. Rob Goldstone is a journalist, publicist, and author who now hosts an amazing weekly podcast entitled An Englishman in, well, wherever. But perhaps Rob is most well known for having written what is now called the most famous email in history. That email was to Donald Trump Jr. and it would eventually spark the Trump Russiagate scandal. So welcome Rob, how are you? Hello, I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. So tell me, how has COVID affected you? Well, I think COVID's affected everyone you know uh, I remember now it seems like an eternity ago but it was actually in January or February when you would hear about COVID and you'd be like oh yeah 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 I remember that and um, you kind of paid no attention I was one of those people that paid no attention and um, it's affected me I was living in the United States I was living in New York and I have to say that within a few weeks of it becoming real like covid killing people it's a real disease in 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 the west i had my mask on i was in lockdown i behaved very well which for me is really unusual and i became like um like the enforcer people would try to get in the lift where i was in the building and go do you mind if i don't have a mask on and i was like do you mind not coming in the lift I became that sort of person. Ooh, ooh. And so, because I thought it was really serious and it is really serious. And it's one of those things that has changed my life completely. So much so I moved back to the UK. I thought it was safer here, which to people living here might go, oh my God, we've done such an awful job here. But you know, I was in the States where hundreds of thousands of people every day were diagnosed and were, were die. It's an unbelievable number. I think there are up to seven or 8 million people in the States. And um, I had an opportunity to come back to the UK and thought, okay, I'll come back during a pandemic. I had two weeks of kind of uh, quarantine when I came back and then went straight into lockdown in London. So it's like, people say to me, how have you enjoyed being back in the UK? And I'm like, I've been inside. I don't know, it seems fine. <laughs> so tell me what have you been what have you actually been doing during this lockdown period well um as you mentioned when lockdown started I, you mentioned i have a podcast and i'd avoided doing podcasts for the longest time ever since my story broke that you that you mentioned i'm sure we'll talk about the donald trump saga people said do a podcast and i was like I don't listen to podcasts. I'm not interested in podcasts. And what am I going to talk about? Um, I didn't want to do one just for the sake of saying, oh, I do a podcast. Well, once lockdown began, I was like, I have nothing to do. I need to do something. And everyone said, now's the time to do a podcast. So if nothing else, COVID and everything related to it gave me an opportunity to actually do my podcast. Outside of that, 
you will love this. I can't believe I'm just sharing with you now, but I wrote a book a couple of years ago and I'm writing a new book, but my new book is called The Oriental Mafia. And it's about a group of people, make-believe people that kind of become detectives staying at a hotel called The Oriental in Thailand. Does it ring any bells, Karen? It certainly does. I hope I'm in the book. I of course you're in the book. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we, you know, actually that that is quite funny you should say that because you know how we all sit around the pool. Right. And I think, I think it was me and Shelly Ann who actually named us Pool Mafia. Oh, that's funny. And I'm calling you all the Oriental Mafia. Yeah. And I'm going to have to, you solve a big case, all of you. I just, you know, the thing is, I haven't got very far in it because I can't decide what the end is. And I've worked out, you need to know what the end is before you start writing a book, apparently. I think that's probably, that probably is probably the right way to go about it. Yes, definitely. So that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to write this novel, and which I think will be fun and hilarious and whatever, if I ever get finished and I've been doing my podcast and that's it well done that's amazing so I mean I'm for one I know there's quite a few of us out there who just love listening to your podcast you really are so entertaining and and the way you speak and the way you make everybody feel welcome and sort of comfortable and and you're very very good but who would you say is the most interesting person that you've interviewed up till now you apart from me oh okay um (laughs) the most interesting person on my podcast you mean yeah um Mm. It's very interesting. So I'm going to take two here. One is, I, it hasn't come out yet, but he's coming out shortly. I interviewed a man called Prince Michael of Sealand, who is the ruler of the smallest country on earth, which is based on an oil rig in the North Sea. And his real name is Michael Bates from Essex. But for years, his family have owned this oil rig that used to be a pirate radio station. And you know, when you see ads that says, become a Lord or become a Duke or become an Earl, it's his Sealand that sell those titles because he's the prince of it. So he can do whatever he wants. Um, There was a coup there once. He's been in jail there once. And it's insane. They even have a royal cat. But when he's not on his oil rig, he lives in Essex. So it was really interesting. It was really fun. I enjoyed that. That's coming out. And the other one I enjoyed was the actress Denise Welch from Coronation Street. I really liked her. She was really warm. I'd never met her in my life. A mutual friend suggested we did the podcast. And I just thought what she had to say about her struggles with mental health and how COVID, we're back to COVID again, really is having an impact on everyone's mental health, even people who don't know it. I agree with you. That's actually why I started my COVID diaries because it, I've always written a diary and um, writing my COVID story, and I've had so many traumas in, in this last few months, was helped me. So I thought maybe it would help other people and maybe other people would would encourage them to write a diary. And I can't tell you how many people have listened to my podcast and, and have contacted me and said, you know what? I think that's a great idea. I'm going to write down everything that happened to me and I'm going to keep on writing. And Because it is a well-known fact, apparently, in the world of therapy, that if you write down your feelings and you, how what's happening in your life, it apparently it does help you in, in, in many, many ways. So that's and, great. And also, do you, do you find that in today's electronic world where everything's a computer and a whatever, a phone, writing a diary is like a bit of a throwback to the past as well? 
Absolutely. Everybody says to me, oh, do, oh, do you do it on your, on your computer or do you do it on your phone? No, I do it with a pen. I have different colored pens for different situations. A blue pen for when I'm in the UK, a red from when I'm here in Israel and a purple pen for when I'm traveling. So when I'm flicking through the pages, oh, I know exactly fun. where I am without sort of thinking about it. It's, oh, that's it's, very clever. I bet there's a lot of purple in that diary. Um, yeah, well, but, there was. There is not at the moment, but there was a lot of purple. But I have to ask you a question, which is like, yeah. we like to travel. And, and I don't think, I don't use travel just as going on holiday. I like it. I think it's part of living. I think I, I, it always annoys me when I used to meet people in America, especially that were like, oh, I'll be retiring soon and then we'll travel. Or, you know, when Eddie gets to be 75, we'll finally go somewhere. It's like, what have you wasted your whole life doing? Don't you agree that traveling is part of living? I certainly do. Travel, I mean, not traveling this year has made a massive difference to us, a massive, we've had such itchy feet. It's so interesting to see different places. It's also very interesting to go to the same place every year that we do, as you know, when we... So as you know, Robert, every year we go to the um, the Oriental in, in Bangkok, which is familiar and fabulous, and there's a whole team of us, and we always have a good time. But we love to explore new places. Last year, we did a fantastic river cruise in Cambodia, and then we went to Vietnam. But already... It was, it was beginning, you know, this whole COVID thing was happening. And there's loads of places I still want to go to. We want to go to New Zealand, never been to. There's parts of the States I'd like to see that I haven't seen. There's loads of countries. But I think, actually, my most favourite place, apart from, obviously, Bangkok and Thailand and Phuket, I think my most favourite place has got to be Europe. I adore Italy and France and, and just going up the Amalfi Coast, just... It's so near to where we live, and it's just fabulous. I mean, that to me is heaven and paradise. And I miss it. And, and what about this idea of people staying at home? It is a bit alien to people. Um, I did like a quote I saw, and I think it's really valid. They said, in the Second World War, people were asked to go off to war. They might never return. We're being asked to sit in the living room with a cup of tea and watch Netflix, and we're all moaning about it. It is true. But nevertheless, it's difficult, right? It is difficult. It's very difficult. But I, f I feel so embarrassed if I whinge and moan because I live in the most magnificent country with the most beautiful, so I'm five minutes away from the beach where I can go for a walk, whatever the situation, I can always go for a walk. Um, I should not complain at all. I, you know, I dare say to anybody in England, so I apologise to all of you who are listening to this, that, that, um, that it's miserable not being able to travel because actually it's okay, it's fine. I can cope with it. I live in a magnificent place and um, traveling will come again. Life and and how did, uh, I, I've hijacked your podcast because I wanted to ask you things, but how do you think Israel has dealt with it? I mean, we know how Britain has, I know how America has. How has Israel dealt with the pandemic? Well, at the beginning, we were doing fantastically everybody was modeling themselves on Israel. We had hardly any, any cases. In fact, my husband Martin got the virus and he was like, sort of like a celebrity. Oh, oh, wow. We oh, now he would like that, it. right? He would love being a celebrity. Well, yes, it doesn't take much to please him in that respect, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, how, oh, wow, we now know somebody who's got the virus. That's how rare it was. And unfortunately, our government, I mean, all the governments, I'm not blaming just our government, every government in, in America and in England, everywhere, they all made mistakes because it, it's something they've never done before. They don't know right. how to control. 
So in our particular case, our government let us out far too soon after Passover in April. They let us go, they just opened everything up, put everything back to normal. And unfortunately, we then started with a very, very savage um, second wave. And we're still in lockdown. They're doing it very slowly now. We have, I mean, this sounds like a real win. We haven't had a restaurant for nine weeks or is it eight weeks? I don't know. No, but that is a long time. Yeah. It also has an impact on people that have those restaurants as well. It's, uh, you know, I go back to, yeah, it, it, it's tough for, to everyone. But I, I agree with what you said. It's, it's not that they're incompetent, so they've never had to deal with it before. No, it's, it's, this is a new thing. I mean, you know, what, I, I can't imagine what these governments, what, when they all sit around together around their table and they're discussing now what, they must all go, I don't know. What do we do? What do we do? So, you know, you've got people obviously who are saying, right, that's it. We've got a lockdown completely. It's the only way. And we're not going to get anything done. If we're not going to get everybody, we're going to overwhelm the health service if we don't lock down. And there's other people saying, what about the economy? So there's, 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 you know, there's good and bad. There's, there's a, a side for each situation, isn't there? You know, you exactly. Can't... And I like that they all compare New Zealand. I mean, I used to live in Australia and I've been to New Zealand many times. I mean, there are like sheep and a ferret that live in New Zealand and nobody <laughs> transits through it. And nobody, you know, even in the, in the States that has, I don't know, 300 and something million people, they go, well, why can't we be like New Zealand? Well, because you're not. No, exactly. <laughs> you can't be like anyway. New Anyway, moving on from that, I, I know that everybody out there is dying to hear the story of Donald Trump. Donald and Trump. Before, before you tell the story, can I just ask you something? Have you ever met him? Donald Trump, yes. I've met him a number of times. I actually um, took him to Moscow when, when my client hosted the Miss Universe contest in 2012. And uh, in 2012, we we had him there and it was quite shocking, the whole thing. Because years later, it was part of, again, the Russiagate inquiry. Why was he in Moscow? What did he do in Moscow? And um, yeah, I spent uh, I spent a few days with him there. I, um, I tell the story because this to me sums up Donald Trump. Um, the first thing I asked him to do was to address a group of scary businessmen and political people in Moscow at Nobu having dinner. And they asked him a series of questions. They obviously were in awe of him just as a businessman, as a brand. And they finished by saying, the head of a bank there said to him, what do you think of the European debt crisis? And I thought, oh, this will be good. And Donald Trump stood up and he said, have any of you ever watched a show called The Apprentice? He then spoke for 10 minutes about how amazing it was, how brilliant he was, and how wonderful he is as a money provider to NBC that owned the show. And the only reference to Europe was he said, and I think it's shown in Europe. He sat down, he got a standing ovation. And on the way out in the lift, he turned to me and he said, has there ever been a better self-promoter than Donald Trump? And that's it. That's him. It's, it was all smoke and mirrors, and he was fabulous at it. And um, years later, when um, my client, who was a Russian pop star, and myself were in Trump's office, in Trump Tower, to say hello, he said, I'm running for president. And we were like, is that a joke? And he goes, no, no, I am. And we congratulated him, whatever. And we both said, oh, you'll obviously win. And on the way out, my client said to me, 
we didn't even ask him which party he was running for. And I said, it doesn't matter. He'll win anyway, because he has so much bravado that it's irrelevant. And that's what it was. And um, yeah, so I met him a number of times um, over the years. Uh, I met him in Las Vegas once where he was crazy. Uh, in Moscow, I was there with him for a few days. And then on three occasions, my client and I went to visit him in Trump Tower at his office. On one occasion, it had been raining and I got there and I have quite weird hair. And I went and he said to me, is there something weird about your hair? And I said, if we're having a hair debate, one of us loses and it isn't me, which he thought was quite <laughs> funny. He was... Um, he was like a big blustering buffoon. He was very Boris Johnson in that whole buffoon-like way. But he was very endearing and fun and loud. And um, I liked him at the time. I thought he would win. I told everyone he would win. I have so many friends that have never spoken to me since the first day I said he would win. And it had nothing to do with politics. It was to do with him, it'd be like if Simon Cowell years ago would have run to be prime minister in England, he would have won. Nothing yeah. to do with politics, he would have won. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. So what actually happened with this email? Oh, well, it was something and nothing that literally started World War III. Um, my client who was Russian, his dad asked him if he could get a meeting for a Russian lawyer that he knew. The dad asked the son, who was my client, the son asked me, I asked him a bunch of questions which he didn't want to answer. And as you may know, if you manage someone or represent someone and that's your big client, you do what you have to do. So I puffed up an email uh, in a way that only I could do. And I sent this email to Trump's son, Don Jr., who I'd met a couple of times. And that was it. I never thought any more of it. And it led to a meeting in Trump Tower that I was at that also led to nothing. And I never paid the slightest bit of attention until a year later, I, Trump had become president. I was on a cruise. I got to the end of it. I was in Athens. I went for lunch and my cell phone rang and a woman said, hi, it's blah, blah from the Washington Post did you want to send an email to Donald Trump Jr. about whatever? And I said, sure, why? And she said, you did? I said, yeah, why? And she goes, have you not read the news or like read the papers? I said, no, I've been on a cruise ship for 10 days. I haven't had, she goes, I would suggest you put everything down and you look at the news. Mm -hmm. And I was the news. It was the most shocking thing ever. Oh my God, that must have, I mean, in one way, you know, I would have thought it would be fabulous because it would put you to the sort of the forefront of everybody's minds. But in another way, it was not the sort of publicity that you could have no. done with. No, because then by the time we got back to the hotel, there were already news crews there and TV crews. And uh, it was crazy. From then on, it was really, really crazy. And the problem is I hadn't kind of one X factor or the Eurovision Song Contest. So everyone wanted to see me. I was being portrayed as everything from like the KGB to MI5. A lot of people said I was in the Mossad. Like there's lots of stories about me being a Mossad agent. And I thought it was hilarious. I was like a Mossad agent or the KGB, have they seen me? Like, and <laughs> so this went on and on. And then of course, um, I didn't close my social media down because I didn't know how. And so all my posts, like crazy posts, I'd been on a cruise. I've, I'd done a whole series of ridiculous videos about the Titanic. 
all of those were on the news. I'd done Andy Pandy. I'd done a whole Andy Pandy segment. Suddenly, CNN is leading their bulletin with me as Andy Pandy. I mean, it was unbelievable, but it was horrifying at the same time. So it didn't do you any favours? No, it did me no favours whatsoever. No, so few favors that I ended up testifying to Congress. I was on Capitol Hill. I had to testify in front of the Senate. I had to testify to Bob Mueller's team. I had to testify to a grand jury. So yeah, it did me no favors whatsoever. Very stressful part of your life, I would imagine. Just a touch. Yes, just a touch. And thank God when it was all over, we went into a pandemic. <laughs> well, I just celebrated last year, it all being over, like... Muller's inquiry, all this, it literally was all over in maybe October of last year. Now we're in a pandemic. So, so there's other things that are probably coming to other people's, to people's minds more importantly than that. Okay, so, so. But, but, uh, but I have to say, wait, I'm not the only one that's met presidents though. Excuse me. You've spent some time with another president. Oh yes, I have. Oh, sexy Bill Clinton. Ooh. Absolutely gorgeous. Right, well, mine, I'll tell you the story very briefly because there's a few things I want to ask you before, before we finish. And that is, um, right, so I, I met Bill Clinton because we, I, I was working as a volunteer for JNF, that's the Jewish National Fund, um, in England, in Manchester, and I was the chairman for 20 years. And as a part of a national um, uh, fundraiser, London, Glasgow and Manchester, we brought Bill Clinton over to do three different separate dinners. And I was in charge of, of, um, of putting the, the, the second dinner in, which was the Manchester dinner. And I got the chance obviously to meet him and one thing or another. And he was amazing, an amazing, amazing man. He has a charisma like I've never known. For instance, when he, he gets a bit bored, he's, he's like this, he's sort of moving around a lot. He can't sit still for, for too long. So I said, you look a little bit bored. Would you like to come and meet some of my family? This is during dinner or my friends. He said, Come on, Karen, I'd love to come and meet some of your friends. Come on. So we got up from the table and the whole of all his... his, his secret um, service. Secret yeah. service were going absolutely mad. And they, they weren't happy. So they, they followed us around and then he wants to go to the toilet. That's okay. He can go to the, everyone can go to the toilet. He goes to the toilet. Every man in the room followed him. <laughs> uh, they, they just followed him into the toilet. I have no idea. He said he couldn't understand it either. He said, maybe they're trying to see if there's something I've got that they haven't got. <laughs> I don't That's know. So anyway, so he was staying in a hotel that I've managed to get this very nice little hotel in Manchester to agree to host him for nothing. The whole hotel was to be closed. It was the Mere Court, Mere Court House Hotel, Country House Hotel in the middle of Mere in, um, in South Manchester. Be beautiful little hotel. And we stayed there as well, my husband and I, Martin and I, and a few, a few other people. Anyway, he went back to the hotel. He actually had a sore throat. So he sat in his room playing cards and, and having drinking lemon tea and eating ice cream. And, um, and, you know, everybody sort of went to bed. So we went to bed and during the time that he'd been in Manchester, there was a guy um, called Dave who'd been his main secret service man. And he followed me around for a week before Bill Clinton came to Manchester, right. just to make sure that I was okay. He even came to our house for dinner and we hung out a lot for a whole week. So during, um, so we, Martin and I just got into bed and my phone rang, my, my mobile phone rang and this Dave says, hey, Karen, the big guy wants to have a drink with you in the bar. So I said, oh, well, I'm in bed. He said, do you want to come? I said, okay. So I said, but, but I'm not getting dressed. 
I'm sorry, I'm not getting dressed. He said, are you crazy? I said, no, no, honestly, I've got, I'm going to put a robe on because I'm, I'm in dress. I'm in dress. I can't be bothered. Nobody else is going to be there. So I'll, I'll put, I'll put a robe on. So I got up, my husband looked at me and he said to me, Martin said to me, if you think I'm coming down now to the bar to have a drink with Bill Clinton, you can forget it. So I just looked at him and I said, well, Martin, if I recall by this call, you weren't actually invited. I think it was <laughs> me that was invited. So anyway, I trudged down to the bar and he started to laugh when he saw me in my robe and he was wearing his jeans and we, he ordered himself a Guinness and I had a Diet Coke or whatever, or a glass of water, because I don't actually drink. And we started chatting and about five minutes later, Martin comes trudging in with his dressing gown and slippers on. He couldn't bear to, to, to miss out. Now we then had about, we slept, we, we stayed talking to him for about three hours till about five in the morning. And we were chatting about um, everything. He told us everything about his time. It was quite incredible hearing all about Saddam Hussein and right. that was the biggest regret that he didn't get rid of him. And it was the most amazing, amazing few hours I've ever spent. And it was actually recorded by somebody who took a photograph of us in, in our robes with, with Bill, especially one of me on my own with, with Bill Clinton in a robe. And then the next day, the News of the World called me and said, could they have the photograph? And I said, there is no photograph, you know. Oh. But you see, you were lucky that I had all sorts of photos and things and some were with Trump. And they people just stole those from my Facebook, my Instagram, all that. And actually, somebody who I thought was a really good friend also sold footage of me with Trump and all that. So it's funny, those things make you a bit of a, 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 bit of a yeah, celebrity. Of so. course they do. Anyway, let's move on from the presidency. And let me ask you this. Just, I, I know that you, you knew Michael Jackson, the famous I did. One. So just tell me something about you know, your time with him. I was, um, I was a journalist and I was in Australia at the time and he was going to tour there with a huge tour uh, for an album called Bad. And I decided I wanted to, I don't know, get an interview with him or something. And it so happens that I... I don't know, through a lot of uh, chutzpah, I managed to convince his manager that I should go on the road with them. And they gave me full accreditation and I became part of Michael's entourage. And for 10 days, I traveled around with him and I was really um, treated very well. Like I sat next to him on flights, I did all this. And I, I remember a couple of things stand out um, and I write about both of them actually in my book that we were on a plane and I, he had his head in a book. He like was so intrigued. And I looked and it was an encyclopedia. And I said to him, oh my goodness, you're very smart. Like I couldn't read an encyclopedia. And he gave it to me and it was a children's encyclopedia. It was like D is for dog, you know, E oh. is for egg. And I thought, okay. Uh -oh. And, uh, uh -oh. and then the other thing was we were in a hospital and he was amazing. Like he would go at night in the day, no one would know about it. And we'd all be schlepped in a van to go to a hospital and he'd take gifts. And, and he was really amazing what he did. And he didn't have a pen. Somebody asked him to sign a plaster cast on their hand. I think for, uh, I don't know, arm it was. And um, he didn't have a pen. So I of course had a pen, gave him this pen. And throughout the entire hospital visit, no matter who he met, he would say to me, I still have your pen. I'm like, it's fine. And he, they'd take us to like an ICU ward. People are really ill. And he'd be like, your pen, I still have the pen. So in the end, I wanted to strangle him because he wouldn't shut up about this pen. And it was interesting the, the way his mind worked. And afterwards, I was told it's because no one's ever given him anything. And so he didn't know what to do. 
So the whole time it became, I was embarrassed for him because people would be like, you know, here's little Johnny who has whatever. And he'd be like, your pen, don't forget the pen. And in the end, I was so mad. I stamped on the pen. So there was no pen. I couldn't stand him talking about the pen anymore. So I just smashed the pen on the floor. But he was, um, he was very childlike. Very childlike. And, and, um, and he was very unusual. And I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anyone perform like him. And he would go from this like little sort of nebbishy character that, that worried about a pen to the next minute performing in front of like 80,000 people for three hours. To me, it was unbelievable. It was the same person. It was really incredible. And, um, you know, I still think there's a lot of great artists and a lot of great people. Michael Jackson was really one of a kind. Yeah, yes, I think you're probably right. And what about Muhammad Ali? Oh, another one. Yes, another one I did. Again, I was, yeah, I was a journalist in Birmingham uh, for a radio station called BRMB. And the sports editor challenged me. Ali was coming to town. And he goes, I bet you can't get him on tape, like an interview with him. And that's all I needed. So I went, I spent a week and befriended everybody at the center, the boxing club where he was going to be. And on the first day, Ali said maybe a couple of words into my mic. And I asked him if he would do an interview with me the next day. And he said, yes. So I went the next day with my tape recorder and I was going to record him there. And um, he was really busy that day. And eventually I said, oh, hello, don't forget me, you know, my interview. And he said, well, do you have a car? And I said, sure, I have the old newsroom Ford Fiesta, why? And he goes, well, I have to do an interview right at your station. And I thought, oh my God, he thinks he's live on air. And I thought, well, this will be funny. So I put Muhammad Ali in my newsroom car, <laughs> drove him to the station, didn't tell them. Remember, there's no mobile phones, there's nothing. So Rob Goldstone appears with Muhammad Ali at the station. And I just walked him into the studio and there was a sports program. And my news editor said, and he posted it again recently, he said to me, you have more front than Brighton. And I thought, well, that's good. And that was it. And Muhammad Ali's in the station. And for an hour or more, he took questions from people on the radio. And then I drove him back. And it's bizarre. And it makes no sense. And I have great photos of it. But you don't get anything if you don't ask, I suppose. No. Well, you see, that's it. It's, as you said, it's chutzpah. It's, it's chutzpah. chutzpah that gets you everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe that you also had some dealings with Richard Brunson, who I think is quite amazing, actually. I think he, I think he's an amazing, I don't know anything about him, but I don't know about him personally. I, I used to represent, I used to do PR for Virgin Megastores in Australia and for Branson. And yes, we had him there on a couple of occasions. On one occasion, I had a fake Queen Elizabeth knight him in the middle of the street with a big royal procession. <laughs> but I also saved his life. And that's in my book as well. In Sydney, we plan to open a big Virgin Megastore. And, you know, he's crazy. So he wants to do unusual things. He wanted to abseil off this huge building and land on a monorail that was being launched but didn't exist. And then he'd be like Spider-Man and he'd arrive. And it was insane, but he wanted to do it. And on the morning before, I had this sixth sense and I was like, is that monorail not – I mean, I know it's not operational – but should, and we couldn't tell anyone because we'd be banned from doing it. And I called somebody at the council and they said, it's electrified. 
So I called Richard and I was like, you can't do this. And, you know, he still won. I said, you can't because you'll actually burn to death on this monorail, basically. And within minutes, he'd come up with another solution, which was he came in on the harbor, dressed as a pilot on water skis and then threw everyone in Sydney Harbor. But the point is, I saved his life Uh, in a way. I mean, maybe I didn't, but I kind of did. 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 I did a bit. He would have at least had a bit of an electric shock. Yes, But he was amazing as well. And he's another one that... He's a bit, I don't mean smoke and mirrors because he does a lot, but I remember he said to me one day, I'm going to start an airline. I'm going to bring it to Australia. Let's just do a press conference. And he said, okay, introduce it. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, neither do I. So let's just make it up. And it was that you need that level of bravado and whatever to, to be like Donald Trump, Richard Branson, and a number of people. I used to represent Peter Morton who owned hard rock cafes. He was another kind of, monster on some level but very much knew how to self-promote i remember saying to him once i could never get into the hard rocks because the lines because people inside he goes there's no one inside there's just lines outside because we don't let anyone inside so remember hard rocks year ago years ago was the place to be and he was the great american disaster remember that in um in manchester and all this kind of stuff it was all it's all smoke and mirrors Incredible, incredible. You've met some, you've met some very, very interesting people, Rob. And I have a feeling there'll be a lot more people that you're going to be meeting before the time, before your time is up. That's for sure. But I won't um, send any of them an email ever again. No, I think that, I think your emailing days, are, you know, you've got to think about it. And if you should ever get to, to meet and to interview my most favourite person in all the world, Paul McCartney, please let me know. I shall. I have in the past, but if I do again, I shall. I love him. I'm sorry, everybody. I can't help myself. I love Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney and ice cream, my two most favourite things, pop my husband's children and grandchildren. And Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton. Ah, oh, Bill. Yes, good old Bill. Yeah, he's an amazing character, that Bill Clinton. So on that note, I'll just ask you, how are you going to be spending the rest of our COVID lockdown times? Any ideas? Well, at the moment, um, ironically, the lockdown in London is supposed to end at midnight and my birthday is the next day. However, mm. I can reveal this with you. I'm going to be posting this on my socials in a week or two. I've cancelled my birthday. I'm not changing age this year. I think this year is rubbish. I think there's no point in it. It was to be quite a landmark birthday. And so my birthday is December 3rd. So what I'm actually doing is moving this year's to December 2nd of next year, and then I'll have another birthday on the 3rd next year. Well, I think that's probably one of the most sensible ideas I've ever, ever heard. Because it's rubbish. Who wants to celebrate a birthday this year? It doesn't exist. I'm not changing. I didn't want to change that age anyway. And that's it. I'm I'm delaying it a year, and I shall be making a formal announcement like something the palace would do. Absolutely. Well, I think that's an excellent idea. So on that note, I'll wish you a very happy birthday. Thank you. And uh, for next year, uh, for not, not for this year. And I hope that you uh, can do many, many more podcasts that we're all going to be listening to, all going to be enjoying. And so you I'll- too. You've a, you've a lot of diary there to share with people. I certainly have. I certainly have. So thank you. Take care of yourself, Rob. Thank you very, very much.